um, tonight we're going to be looking at this topic, that God is more tolerant than he used to be. Uh, how many of you know what I mean when I say that, or you kind of get an idea? God's more tolerant today than he was maybe in the past, maybe you know, in the Old Testament, you might think about as, as a comparison. There was a, uh, a PBS special on a number of years ago. Bill Moyers was hosting it, and uh, he had a panel discussion. And uh, the title of it was Genesis, A Living Conversation. And so they were looking at the Genesis account in the Old Testament, and um, the panel basically, most of them agreed and held to this idea that, that God is kind of evolving over time. Um, this idea that, um, and they, like for instance, they looked at Noah's flood, and they said, uh, this, what happened here with this flood and then you know, the rainbow afterwards is like, um, God was sort of like a child who built a sandcastle and got mad and just knocked it all down. And then later was like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. And so he kind of gave this nice little rainbow as a way of saying, I'm sorry. You know, I should have thought through it more, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and, so, and so God's kind of evolving over, over time is the idea. Now, what I think they were really reflecting on is I think they have this idea that the Bible is not necessarily accurate, but it's a representation of what people have believed about God throughout the centuries. And that's really what's evolving. As people are becoming more enlightened, uh, we, we're, we're becoming more tolerant of other views, and so we kind of reflect those concepts of our enlightenment, our, our kindness, our tolerance onto God. And so we see God becoming this kind of more tolerant, be, being evolving, much as we are morally uh, evolving over time, is the idea. Um, and surely they asserted this is kind of what explains that when I open my Bible, the left side of it seems, gosh, it seems different. He seems kind of like a different God. And then the right side of my Bible, it's all this stuff about grace and, and love and forgiveness. And the left side, it's all, you know, it's condemnation, it's harsh, it's judgment. It, it, it's, it's just reflecting the uh, really social evolution, really, of humanity, now, some of you guys in this room may have had some of those thoughts at times. You may have kind of thought, if I were totally honest, I've kind of wondered about that. Like, how do I make sense of that? Because I kind of see what, what they mean when they say, maybe God's become more tolerant over, over time. You know, when you read the Old Testament, for instance, I, I just looked up a couple. This is not an exhaustive list, but the Mosaic Covenant, this is what God enters into with the, the Israelites, Moses and all the Israelites, he entered into a specific covenant with them called the Mosaic Covenant. And there were, if you know anything about it, there were a lot of laws, right, about behavior, surrounding people's behavior, the Israelites' behavior. And there were even laws which, if broke, um, would be punishable by, by capital, uh, capital punishment, taking of, taking of the life. And so some of those, just as an example, there were certain religious practices which were punishable by death, um, sacrificing children to idols, kind of like that one, I mean, that's punishable by death, um, false prophecy, uh, necromancy, communication with the dead, uh, witchcraft, uh, breaking of the Sabbath. There were some sexual practices um, around which they were punishable by death, uh, raping a woman who is betrothed to another man. So just the man would be killed, not, not the woman. Uh, adultery. Uh, some forms of incest, 
uh, same-sex intercourse, bestiality. And then there were some kind of miscellaneous uh, offenses, sins, for which capital punishment also took place. Cursing one's parents. How many of you would have a lot less kids if we still practice that today? Um, or you wouldn't be here. Maybe I should say that. Uh, kidnapping. Um, being a false witness in a capital case. So there were a lot of, uh, of offenses in the Mosaic Covenant with God that, that were punishable even in these cases, like I, I, I gave an example of uh, punishable by, by death. Now, we don't punish some of these anymore in our cultures anyway, at least by capital punishment, we don't. So is it that God's opinion on these issues has really changed over time, if you say you're, a, you, you all scripture is God breathed, so you as a Christian, but you would say, well, I don't think some of these should be should be punishable by by death. Does that mean you've changed because God has changed? How do we answer this question of God is more tolerant today than the days past, or at least certainly the the Old Testament? Well, before we jump into it, let me suggest thing. I think that we feel the need to answer it for at least two reasons. One, I think we need to answer it to, to know that we humans want to know whether we're kind of free to sin um, with a m- minimum of consequences. <laughs> um, can we now kind of live as we please uh, with, with the assurance that, that God will treat us with compassion, not judgment, right? But the second reason that I think we also want to or feel the need to answer this is because we want to know whether it's safe for others to do wrong, maybe to us. Um, If you've been sinned against, you want to know, can you depend on a God who will settle things at the end of the day if justice doesn't happen here and now? A girl who has been raped, a child who has been abused, maybe an elderly person who has been swindled out of their retirement and their investments. All of these victims, hundreds of more like them, want to know whether God is so loving that he will just kind of overlook all those things. Um, and there won't be any final judgment, right? That doesn't feel quite good either. So I want tolerance for myself with God, <laughs> but I really want judgment for other people. So I kind of I kind of like half of it, but then I don't like the other half of it. So we need to, again, think through this correctly because we see problems kind of so far whichever direction we might go. So again, your ideas about God, most important thing about you. It'll determine how you live, how you act, how it won't want it. I mean, just this perfect example. Is God going to bring justice finally or eh? He just kind of shirks it off. What will he do? So a couple considerations. I've got four considerations in your bulletin that I want us to just consider these four things. Um, and it's not in the form of an, you know, syllogism argument or anything. It's four considerations that I think after we spend a little bit of time, the dust will settle and it will look clearer. We'll kind of start to see some things that maybe we didn't see before. We'll see some connections, I believe. here. So the first one, first consideration the Old and New Testaments consistently present God as changeless in his character and fidelity. Um, 
Tonight, I'm going to read a lot of scripture. I hope that's okay. <laughs> uh, I'll try not to go too fast through it, but there, there's just a lot of reference points that I want us to hit. Uh, the Old Testament prophet Malachi, uh, this guy's writing maybe about 400 years before Jesus. He's, he's writing probably right before the Ezra and Nehemiah stuff, all the Reformation, all that sort of thing. And he, he's writing to Israel. He's, prophets are always mouthpieces for God. So he, he's, he's, he's speaking and acting and engaging with Israel, warning them that, that God, God will judge you if you keep going down this, this road. But he also promises redemption for those who remain faithful. Malachi 3, uh, 5 through 6 says this. This is God speaking. I will come to you in judgment. I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the widow and the fatherless and cheat the wage earner, and against those who deny justice to the foreigner. They do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. And verse six, he says this, because I, Yahweh, so he's just said, judgment's coming. Because I, Yahweh, have not changed, that, that, that's key, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. What he's saying is you deserve to be destroyed. <laughs> there, there's nothing about you that doesn't deserve to be destroyed. But I made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that through their family line, I will preserve that family. And because through that family line, I'm going to bring my blessing back to the world. So he's saying, I, have not, I do not break trust. My fidelity does not ebb and flow. It's not fitful. It's absolutely changeless. Numbers chapter 23, you go back in time a little bit more. This is when the Israelites have come out of Egypt and they're wandering through the desert. And as they're wandering, they're this massive group. The different peoples are nervous about them. They've heard stories. And so the king of Moab, one of the guys, he watches them coming. His name is Balak. And Balak hires a prophet by the name of Balaam. And he says, hey, Balaam, I will pay you money if you pronounce a curse on this people group. So Balaam goes up to this top of this mountain overlooking the tribes of Israel. And he's going to pronounce, and every time he opens his mouth, he goes, uh, uh, he just pronounces a blessing. He's like, oh, wait, wait, what? Okay, I can do this. <clears throat> Tries it again. Uh, and every time he opens his mouth, he pronounces a blessing. He can't curse them. He's not allowed to curse them. And so Balak, the king of Moab, says, well, go and pray and ask Yahweh to change his mind, right? Maybe he'll change his mind. And so he goes and asks him to change his mind. In Numbers 23, 19, um, we read this. God is not a man who lies or a son of man who changes his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? So he's created a category. Humanity does that stuff. Humanity's fallen and they don't keep their promises and they don't. God's a different sort. God's not like humans in that way. God does not in that way change. The New Testament book of James, he writes this. He says, Do, uh, this is James 1.16. Do not be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generation, I'm sorry, every generous and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, and listen to what he, how he describes him. With him, there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. There's not even a shadow. He, he doesn't change so that the shadow's here one day and then it's there the next. He's using a physical picture. Hopefully, you can kind of wrap your mind around it. 
What he's saying is God does not change. His character is immutable. It doesn't, it doesn't change. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, um, he, he really interestingly, he applies this quality. There's humanity that they never keep their word, and then there's God, and only God has his quality. The, the author of Hebrews applies that quality to Jesus. Hebrews 13, 8, um, he says this, and the context is he's saying, hey, be careful of false teachers, because there's people out there and they got bad ideas, bad concepts, false teaching. Be really, really careful. And he says, but Jesus, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He applies that quality even to Jesus himself. So the, the consistent testimony all throughout Scripture is that while humanity uh, changes in our character, we're fitful and everything, there's a completely unique quality in a being in which never changes character with respect to um, uh, his fidelity, and that's God. The word in, in, in theology, if you pick up a theology book, this, this refers to God's immutability. He's immutable. He's unshiftable. He's unchangeable in his character. It can't go bad. It can't change. Okay? Second consideration, God's first one, God is consistent throughout time. He, he's, he can't change in his character. The second consideration is that Jesus affirmed the authority of the Old Testament in the strongest ways possible. Now, this is a big deal. Let me just read for you a couple places where Jesus strongly affirms to, to an extreme level the authority of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. Matthew 4. Do um, you remember when Jesus is drawn out into the um, wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. Do you remember how each one of his responses starts? It is written, right? So right, even right there, think about that. Every single time he says, it is written. Apparently that means something. There's some authority to that. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus says, don't assume that I came to destroy, that I came to destroy excuse me, the law and the prophets. He puts the law, the Torah, uh, and, the, and the prophets in a kind of a bundle package. They're both equal. Don't think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verse 18, he goes on to say, for I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, till the end, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter, like the, you know, we would say the, the dot on the top of the eye, <laughs> uh, will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. John 10, 35, he, he says, Scripture cannot be broken. It's unbreakable. Uh, John 5, 19. Now, this is really key, okay? Um, you ever hear people say things like, well, Jesus never addressed that, right? Have you heard that before? You know, you're talking about you know, something. Well, Jesus never said a word about that. John 5, 19, then Jesus replied, I assure you, the son, that's his name, the name for himself, the son of man, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son also does these things in the same way. So that's really, and this is not the only place he says this. He says this numerous times. He says, I don't speak on my own. Everything I do is simply, I'm doing what the Father tells me to do. Our, our actions, our behaviors, our wills, our minds are mirrored 
they're one in the same. Remember, he says, I and the Father are one. He says this many, many times. So when someone, you know, says the whole, well, you know, Jesus never spoke against that, a couple things we have to remember. Number one, at the end of the book of John, John says, oh, by the way, Jesus said many, many other things. In fact, if they were all written down, I suppose all the books in the world couldn't contain them. Okay, so clear, Jesus clearly said other things. But number two, if you want to know what Jesus thinks about something and it's not really clear in the red letters, look at the rest of Scripture. That's the context to the red. In fact, there's a whole um, movement. that It was real popular, I don't know, a year or two ago. Uh, but there's still people today uh, who, who, who call themselves red-letter Christians. And I would suggest it's a very dangerous leaning. Now, these are people who love Jesus and want to live Jesus-centered lives. I get that. But it's very, very dangerous. Any movement we make to lop off portions of Scripture and say, I like this and not so much that. Or, I like this and neglect that. The early church actually condemned a, a leader who got into the church by the name of Marcion because Marcion went really far. He said, I like the right side and not the left side. Cut it. And even some of the right side is a little too much like the left side, so I'll cut that too. And he was condemned by the church as a heretic. <clears throat> and here's the problem is Jesus, the red letters, he said things about the black letters that he liked. And he said they were just as good as his red letters. <laughs> so you can't do that. It's a dangerous move. But it's kind of novel and sexy, and so people like it. Ooh, I've never heard of that kind of Christian. I want to be one of those. No, don't <laughs> be a follower of Jesus who affirmed all of Scripture and was bathed in the Old Testament. That's what he quoted constantly. Number three, third consideration. Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, God's expectations of obedience are in proportion to the nature of the dramatic miracle or revelation. That's a big sentence, right? Okay, stick with me for a second. This is the one point I was worried about in preparing for this because I'm afraid it's going to be like unclear and you're just going to go, that's dumb, that didn't make any sense. It may be, it may be dumb, but stick with me, okay? Um, there, there, there's a simple idea. Let me give it to you in the most simple form and then kind of build up. So just, this is going to be the hardest part. Stick with me for a couple minutes, okay? Um, Luke 12, 42, Jesus says these words. He says, much will be required of everyone who has been given much. And then he says it just a, a parallel way too. He says, and even more will be expected of the one who has been entrusted with more. Um, I learned it at the old King James. My mom used to quote this to me all the time. To whom much is given, much is required. Okay? So to whom much is given, much is required. Here's what I, now here's what I mean by all this. Have you ever noticed that in Scripture, it seems like in certain times, and it's not consistent across, but it's like God seems to act in like judgment in sort of, you might say, severe ways. We talked about some last. Here's my theory. I, it could be wrong, but I, I think it's right. That there, there are big moments of change, like hinge moments in God's story, okay? like creation, right? like the exodus, um, like the prophets, like John the Baptist and Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit in this church. Okay? Big moments of change. And these moments are, are, are punctuated with 
divine, big deal, unavoidable miracles, right? Like you can think about. They're in the desert, okay, after the Exodus. I mean, they've got, they wake up and there's like manna. I don't know, I don't know what it is. It's bread or whatever. There's bread on the ground to sustain them. And in fact, on the day before Sabbath, there's twice as much as normal because they're not supposed to. You know, just like crazy stuff. You know, things that like, the dramatic miracle is like unavoidable to notice. You know what I mean by that? You get to the new, you know, you've got uh, people rising from the dead. Lazarus, right? Jesus brings him back from the dead. He does all, all of these miracles. And I would suggest that these times where there's like punctuated, dramatic, like unavoidable, you can't really not see him, sort of miracles where God is revealing either who he is or what he's doing. um, They're so obvious that that for someone to still harden their heart, like intentionally, make a plan, even at that moment, that it kind of demonstrates that that person might have passed some point of even being changed or redeemed in some way. Because see, here's the thing is, if you will not obey in the face of a dramatic revelation, you will never obey no matter what happens. And so when the dramatic uh, revelation or disclosure of God in some way has been seen in such such an uncontrovertible way, such an undeniable uh, evidence that, um, well, let me read Jesus' words for you. Maybe he'll be clearer than I can be. Matthew eleven sixteen. 16. Um, Jesus, he's, in the, he's toward the end of his ministry. He's gone around. He's doing this in all of the towns where, where he's done miraculous signs, which were spoken about in the Old Testament, about who, how God would act next. Now listen to this. Matthew says, to what shall I compare this generation? All of you guys who I've been interacting with. With. It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to each other. This is what they call out. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang for you, but you didn't mourn. What does that mean? Well, one's, one's a, I, I did a happy song, and you didn't want to dance. I did a sad song, and you didn't want to like mourn stuff. No matter what I do, you will not respond. And then he gives two examples of that. John the Baptist uh, did not come eating and drinking, and they said he has a demon. The son of man, that's him, came eating and drinking. They say, look at this glutton and this drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he says, but yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he proceeded to denounce the towns, listen, where most of his miracles had been done. Dramatic things that you cannot deny. Because they did not repent. And then this is what he says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. These are like, those are Old Testament towns that were judged a long time ago. They never saw Jesus. They never had those miracles done. If, if uh, the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, listen to this, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than it will be for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven or will you go down to Hades? For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom 
on the day of judgment than for you. See, that's to whom much is given, much is required, spelled out, given in an historical moment. That the, the fullest revelation of what God has ever done happened in Jesus. And yet even there, people planned in their hearts to say, no. Mm -mm. And so I think that kind of maybe accounts for why does God seem to act this way now? Think of just a couple months, likely, a couple months after this. After the crucifixion, the resurrection, Jesus has just ascended, and he poured out his spirit in this miraculous way. Remember, people are like hearing this message, and the, like they know they're speaking a different language, but they're hearing it in their own. And God's you know, doing this, these miraculous things, just like he did when he created the Israelites, but he's doing it in a new way, like he promised in Joel, new covenant. And he's, he's creating this new people, and it's unavoidable kind of stuff. And then in Acts chapter 5, right in the middle of that, listen to what happens here. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sephora sold a piece of property. Uh, however, he kept back part of its proceeds with his wife's knowledge, brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to Ananias, so Ananias is by himself. His wife isn't with him right now. Uh, Peter said to Ananias, uh, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a part of the proceeds of the field? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? After you sold it, wasn't it at your disposal? Meaning, you didn't have to give it all. You could give, I'm going to give half. You could do whatever you want. And he says, why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You see all this stuff going on, you, all the miracles, and yet you're, you're intentionally planning a movement away from God. You have not lied to men, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. And then it says, about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had just happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the field for this price, meaning all, all this money? She said, yes, that is the price that we sold it for. And Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. This is instantly she dropped dead at his feet. When the young man came in, they found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came over the whole church and on all who heard these things. Boy, that sounds like something more of the Old Testament. It's the same God. We talked last week about holiness, and not to repeat that, but God is utterly holy, and to intentionally, willfully think I can go into his presence my way, I am destroyed, not because he's bad, but because he's so good and because I, I'm not. Throughout the Old and New Testament, God's expectations of people obeying, and I would say the, the, the severity of judgment when they don't, is in proportion to how obvious and unavoidable the miraculous revelation from God is. And I think we see that all throughout Scripture, not just the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament, even as God is forming us, because <laughs> that's us. Those are our ancestors, forming his church. Last consideration. 
Number four, the love of God was and is the central feature to both Old Testament and the New Testament. Hosea, the prophet Hosea, if you, if you, know, if you don't know the prophet Hosea, go back and read the book. It's, not, it's, it's one of the most magnificent stories of love in the Bible. If you know the story, God comes to this man who he's going to have act in a prophetic way, a prophetic role, Hosea. And he says, I want you to marry this woman. Her name is Gomer. And he marries her and then finds out that she is actually a prostitute. She's selling her body. And so Hosea goes to look for his wife and he walks into the heart of the city and he sees a lineup of men standing out in front of the brothel to pay for an hour of pleasure with his wife. And he goes and he gets in the line, the back of the line. And he waits. And when he gets to the front of the line, he pays for uh, her to come back. It's a day's uh, wage and then half the price of a slave in that day. And he buys her back and takes her home. And imagine, I mean, imagine for a second how you would feel, how humiliated you would be that the one you loved has become a harlot. And what does God say to Hosea? Everyone's seeing this. Everyone's aware. But this, you know, she's done this awful thing. She's dishonored you. She's disgraced you. You know, there's a, there's a certain punishment, Mosaic law. <laughs> she deserves to be killed. And God says, I want you to love her more intently than any of those men loved her. You bring her back home. And when everyone's looking, when everyone's saying how ridiculous it is, he says, now you tell everyone, this is what you have done to me. And this is how I have treated you. You have been completely unfaithful, and yet I keep going back. I don't care how many times you've done it. I keep seeking you. I keep buying you back. I keep redeeming you, but you insist on this. You insist on this life, but I will not give up on you. That's the God of the Old Testament. So when we, when we look at, at this God in the Old Testament, he's so mean and cranky and what? No, it's the same heart. It's like when Jesus came into Jerusalem right before his execution and he, he was looking over Jerusalem and remember he said he started to cry? He said, so often I've, I long to gather you to me like a, like a mother hen would gather her little chicks. And he's crying. He says, but you wouldn't do it. You won't do it, but I won't give up on you. You see, the Old Testament angry God and the New Testament gracious God, it's, it's a false dichotomy. It truly is. It, this is one of the lies of the perpetrator. We talked about that week one. This is one of the lies is that the, we've either God's changed, he's evolved, it, he's, he's just very, very different. No, 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 no. It's the same God. And if, you would, if I would just see that, the true picture of God blows up in my heart. And I begin to live differently. So here's the question. Why does God not just judge everyone? Just get this over with. Why doesn't he judge everyone today? Like for all the bad things that happened, to them, at least to, I mean, to you from other people. Um, why doesn't God just do it? Well, here's the answer, I think. After Jesus' baptism, um, he goes into the desert. He, he's... Remember, what he's doing in all these things is he's carrying on the story of Israel. He's reenacting. He goes, he's baptized in the Jordan River, and just like the Israelites went through the Jordan River to get into the Promised Land, he's taking on their role. They, they couldn't do it perfectly. They blew it. He's going to be the perfect Israelite. He's baptized in the Jordan River. He goes out into the desert, and he's out there for 
40 days, representing the Israelites' 40 years of wandering. And they were tempted and they blew it and they gave in and they rebelled. He's tempted, but he beats it. He's perfect. He does not give in. And after this, he begins his, his ministry. And it says he goes around and he's, he's beginning to teach in some of the synagogues, but he goes to his home synagogue of Nazareth. And do you remember what he does? Do you remember he, he goes to his home synagogue and he gets one of the scrolls, which is one of, one of the books in the Hebrew scriptures, because it's not in codex form, it's a scroll. And he gets the scroll of Isaiah. And we're told that he, he finds the place that, that we call Isaiah 61. And he stands up, and these are the words that he reads. And I would suggest this is the answer of why God doesn't just bring judgment today. Isaiah 61, he says, The spirit of Yahweh, of the Lord God, is on me. Because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim, here's the key phrase, the year of the Lord's favor. And what's really interesting is there's not a period at the end there. If, if, if you're reading along, you'll notice there's a comma. Jesus cuts out in mid-sentence. He doesn't quote the whole thing. Why wouldn't you finish a, finish a sentence? <laughs> um, he didn't finish the sentence because the rest of the sentence says, where he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. What he's saying is, I have come, I'm going to do all of this, but I'm coming to do this right now because this is the day of the Lord's favor on you. So is God just more more tolerant than he used to be. He's kind of done with the whole justice thing. He's kind of relaxed a little bit more. Um, he's evolved. He's, he's grown up. No. According to Jesus, it's because we are currently living in the year of the Lord's favor. Or, as one of Jesus' most famous students, a guy by the name of Peter, as he wrote in sort of his farewell address, 2 Peter 3.8, he says this, Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And he says, so they're probably asking, why doesn't God just finish it? Why doesn't he just bring judgment? You know, kind of get it over with. The Lord does not delay his promises, meaning to return, to judge, to bring justice. As some understand delay, but he's patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. We're living in the day of the Lord's favor. But he says, but the day of the Lord, that's the end of the day of the Lord's favor. The day of the Lord will come and it will be like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all of these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people should you be? How should you be living? Because your ideas of what you think about God are the most important thing about you. How should you conduct yourself in a holy way, in a godly way, as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of the Lord? The heavens will be on fire and be dissolved because of it, and the elements will melt with the heat. But based on his promise, remember his promise, God's unfailing, unchanging character and fidelity 
unwavering. Because of that, we wait for the new heavens and the new earth where tolerance will dwell. No, where righteousness will dwell. See, God is utterly holy, unchanging. He's not tolerant. He's patient. Not wanting anyone to perish, anyone to not be connected to their God, their maker. But everyone to enter the year of the Lord's favor. And so while we wait, we're in the year of the Lord's favor right now. It's still going on. We have to remind ourselves, oh yeah, that's where we are. One day, all of that brokenness, all of that evil, all of the injustice, and even the injustice and evil in here, it'll be eradicated, but I'll be saved.